20. Doc Hami. In the middle of the night, I woke. I told Aldria to sleep. And I waited. I did more thinking that night than I had ever done in my life. I had seen amazing things. I had seen terrible things. And now, I understood that I had to do more than just follow Aldria. I did not believe Aldria was bad, not in the way the Yurks were bad. But Aldria had lied to me. Aldria was an Endolite first, my friend second. And she was hungry for revenge against the Yurks. It was up to me to figure out what to do to save my people. But I had no ideas. No Hork-Bajir had ever faced this problem before. I was helpless. I stood, thinking, for hours. Then, slowly, the diffuse light from below was replaced by a brighter, cleaner light from above. It took me a while before I realized that somehow, the light really was from above, even though I knew there were thousands of feet of rock above me. I craned my neck back and looked up. Aldria, wake up! Aldria's eyes snapped open, all four of them. The stock eyes slowly turned to look upward. There, in the center of the vast domed roof, was a hole. The hole was the bottom of a shaft. The shaft was as big as the trunk of the tribe tree. Without speaking, we moved beneath the shaft and looked straight up. Up into clear, open sky, thousands of feet above us. So far away that the circle of sky looked smaller than Eldria's eye. But the shaft itself was filled with light. It glittered. It seemed almost to be alive, as though the walls of the shaft were moving, and each movement sparkled. Like diamonds, Aldria said. Light glowed from the shaft, and slowly the walls of the vast cavern became visible. I had expected smooth gray or tan rock, but this was not mere rock. The walls of the cavern were covered entirely in swatches and patterns of strange colors. Blues, greens, oranges. Not smooth at all, but quilted. Peering closer, I could see that all the patches of color were of a similar shape. Short wings, arms, feet, heads. They're alive! Aldria cried. The walls of the cavern were covered in living creatures of every imaginable shade. Then, in a moment I shall remember for all of my life, the creatures woke up. At the same instant, ten thousand eyes opened. Each glittered like a star. Ten thousand glittering eyes stared down at us from left and right and above. Down they came, slowing their fall with their short wings. Each of them was no more than half my height, but there were so many. 
They fell and fell and fell, landing noiselessly. They stood on four legs. They had two elongated arms. They had faces dominated by the glittering eyes and small, red mouths. They're chadus, I blurted. Like large chadus, but so colorful. Not chadus, just distant relatives, I think, Aldria said. The creatures began to walk past us, ignoring us as if we weren't there. They were heading calmly out of the cavern, turning left or right along the walkway outside. But half a dozen of the creatures headed straight for us. One in brilliant purple spoke. What are you doing here? He asked. He speaks my language, I said to Aldria. How I communicate is irrelevant, he or she said. You heard me. You understand. Therefore, answer my question. We are, I mean, I am from above. Yes, yes, I'm not an idiot. You are a hork What are you doing here, hork There are no trees here. There's no bark for you to eat. I shrugged. I looked at Aldria waiting for her to jump in. But she seemed as taken aback as I was. They were chasing us. We came here to escape. Who was chasing you? Yurks, Aldria said. What are you? The creature asked Aldria. I am an Andalite. This is not your place, Andalite. It is not your place, hork Leave! The creature turned and began to walk away. No, I said. The creature stopped. No? No, I said firmly. You will explain who you are, what this place is. We are the Arn, the creature said. I am named Quatzinikon. Do you realize that the hork don't even know you exist? Aldria demanded. Of course they don't. We don't want them to know. That's why we created the very species of creature who live in the zone of separation. We wanted to keep the hork on their side of the zone. Now I must go. I have work to do. He started once again to leave. I grabbed him. I wasn't rough, but I was firm. Ow! Ow! Quatzinikon cried. A dozen Arn turned to stare. They were horrified, afraid. Answer our questions, I said. Are you threatening me? Quatzinikon whimpered. I started to say, no, of course not, but Aldria answered for me. Yes, we're threatening you, and you appear to be appropriately frightened. So answer our questions and spare us the arrogance. Quatzinikon gave her a poisonous look with his glittering diamond eyes. 
You are not part of the balance. You will upset everything. I will not help you. In a flush, Aldria's tail was at the small creature's throat. We are in a hurry. We don't have time to be diplomatic. So let me make this simple for you. Answer us, or I will twitch my tail, and your head will go rolling across this floor. Do you understand? I can't say I was completely shocked. I'd begun to get a fuller picture of Andalites in general, and Aldria in particular. But Quatzenicon was definitely shocked. Everything will fail now, he moaned. The careful balance we've built. But he told us what we wanted to know. He answered our questions. When he was done, I wished he hadn't. Chapter 21 Aldria We went to a different place, along a walkway, down more stairs. Just another arn hole in the wall at first. But then Quatsikinon touched a blue pad set into one wall. The wall opened. Behind the wall was a long, long room, dug deep into the bedrock. The room was filled with row after row of long cylinders. The cylinders were covered in dust. It had been a very long time since anyone had been there. Quatsikinon walked past the cylinders, row after row of them. At the far end of the room, I saw what could only be a large computer console. Well, well, I said. Not simple cave dwellers after all, are you? Quatsikinon went to the console and stepped confidently up to a bank of strange controls. He pressed several buttons, and on the wall behind him, a huge viewscreen appeared. It showed a lush green and blue planet in orbit around a red giant star. Twelve thousand years ago, Quatsikinon said. The screen showed something new twirling through space. An asteroid. It was impossible to judge the relative size, but it was big. An asteroid in unstable orbit, Quatsikinon explained. Each year, another near miss. We knew it would hit us. We tried to build spacecraft to escape, but we failed to manage anything more than local spaceflight. We were interested in biology, not physics. We made it as far as the uninhabitable second moon. No further. So all we could do was wait, and recalculate the orbit, and wait some more. And then... On the screen, we saw the asteroid suddenly plow straight into the planet. The impact was shocking. The entire planet shuddered. Pieces of it went flying off into space. A vast cloud of dust and smoke enveloped the planet, slowly settling over the course of years. When the dust and smoke cleared, the planet was very much changed. Huge cracks had formed from the impact of the asteroid. Huge cracks that formed a belt of valleys around the planet. Much of the atmosphere was gone. Quetzalcoatl explained. A few thousand of us had waited on the moon 
frozen in stasis. We awoke to find that. He pointed at the planet. We returned to our homeworld to find everyone dead. Our entire species. The air was unbreathable except in the valleys. But even there, the balance was precarious. A hair too much carbon dioxide. A shade too little nitrogen. And even the impact valleys would die. So we went to work to understand this new environment. We needed a mechanism for controlling the atmosphere. The trees, I said. I knew then where this was going. I turned one stock eye to look at Doc. He had not figured it out yet. Should I silence the Arn? Should I stop him before he revealed the truth to Doc? Yes, of course, the trees. Quetzalcoatl agreed. Different species, each subtly different in its use of carbon dioxide and its production of oxygen. The perfect balance, the perfect mix. That's what we needed. But they would require constant care, and we were not willing to become a race of tree herders. Quetzalcoatl seemed to hesitate, as if he had read the doubts in my own mind. Should Doc know the truth? So you created a race of tree herders, I said, right here in this room. Yes, in this room we used all our genetic skill to design and build a species that would be perfectly adapted to caring for the trees, preserving them. We made them bark eaters. We gave them bodies perfectly adapted to the task. Doc's eyes widened. He looked at me, disbelief on his face. I nodded slightly. Yes, Doc, I said. This is your creator. Doc looked at the Arn in shock, but he did not fall to his knees or tremble in awe. He was surprised, not impressed. Why the monsters? I asked. To keep the Hork-Bajir separate from us, Quetzalcoatl explained. You see, intelligence was not necessary for tree herders. The Hork-Bajir, as we called them, were intellectually inferior. We felt it was best if they lived in ignorance of us. So for twelve thousand years, they have lived beyond the blue mist, kept away by the genetically engineered horrors they call monsters. I swear, I was ready to show the self-satisfied creature my tail blade. You arrogant, contemptible! I began. To my surprise, Doc cut me off with a raised hand. You created the Hork-Bajir. Yes, Quetzalcoatl said. Or at least my people did. Then you need us, Doc said flatly. Quetzalcoatl looked warily at the towering Hork-Bajir. Yes, I suppose that's true. The Hork-Bajir will be destroyed, enslaved, and taken from this planet. Doc said, "You will lose your tree herders. The Yurks are already destroying us." Quetzalcoatl shrugged. What can we do? We have no weapons. The monsters. Doc said, "You control them, 
don't you? How else would you be able to keep them within the narrow band that separates your people from mine? Now it was my turn to be surprised. That had not occurred to me. But Doc was right. The Arn had control of the so-called monsters. Quetzalcanon gave Doc a hard look. Of course. You're one of the smart ones, aren't you? A seer. We never could entirely eradicate that one bundle of genes. We did our best, but still, from time to time, one of you will arise. Yes, I am a seer, Doc said calmly. You're a freak, is what you are, Quetzalcanon said. A dangerously unstable element. It was our one great failure. One in ten thousand Hork-Bajir is born with intelligence that rivals that of the Arn. How do you control the monsters? Doc asked. You'll ruin everything! I will save my people, Doc said. In saving them, I may save yours as well. The Yurks will not be frightened off by the blue mist and children's stories of Father Deep. They will come for you next. Help us now, and you may live. Later, I complimented Doc. You have learned to go right to the point. You've learned to always keep your own goals in mind and not be distracted. Yes, he said. I am beginning to learn ruthlessness. I have had a very good example to follow. I knew what he meant, but I wasn't going to acknowledge it. What could I do? Laugh and say, Yes, we Andalites certainly are good teachers when it comes to ruthless self-interest. It might have been true, but it would have been stupid to admit it. He'd caught me off guard. I didn't know what to say. Yes, the, um, the Yurks are good examples of ruthlessness, aren't they? I stammered. Doc smiled. Chapter 22 Esplin 9466 Fitting in with the Hort-Bajir had been pitifully easy. The host body I'd taken was named Thet Mashar. His friends had seen him taken into a fighter. They had seen him being dragged away by Geds. And yet, when I reappeared among them, very few questions were asked. I simply said, I am back. And the Hort-Bajir would say, Yes, you are back. I began to realize that we Yurks would have a very great advantage as we went conquering through the galaxy. We might come across races that were smarter, more powerful, more dangerous than the Hort-Bajir. In those cases, we could infiltrate slowly, take one host at a time, Build slowly, never letting our victims know what was happening until it was too late. But those tactics were hardly necessary here. We were able to simply set up a ground base and do business in the open. We were capturing and investing a hundred Hork-Bajir a day. That number would rise every day as we acquired more and more Hork-Bajir hosts to do the hard work. In fact, even my efforts to infiltrate the Hort-Bajir were unnecessary. The first Hort-Bajir I asked 
gave me the name of Doc Hami as the hork who'd been in touch with the Andalites. Doc Hami and a friend of his named Jagil. We looked for Jagil to infest him, but he couldn't be found. Nevertheless, we were soon quite sure of the name Doc Hami. Doc Hami was not my main concern, though. It was the Andalite I wanted, and I learned her name, too. Aldria. She was, as she had said, the daughter of Prince Ciro. The irony was too perfect. The fool Ciro, who had blathered on about peace and brotherhood, while Actor and the others had prepared to attack, had a daughter. Obviously, the daughter was less of a fool than her father had been. But had she somehow survived the trip into the mist? No one had seen her these last two days. There would be an armed expedition into the mist once we were strong enough. For now, there was the simple work of rounding up hork from all over the valley and bringing them to our hastily dug yerk pool. This new yerk pool had not been easy to create. The ground was at such a slant, we'd have had to dig out thousands of tons of dirt. So a better way was found. We used a shredder to cut down a big, hollow tree the hork used to communicate. The tree fell sideways, landing level. It rolled to a stop, held back by the other trees. After that, it was a simple matter to burn away the outer covering on top, creating a very long, narrow yerk pool. It was, actually, an impressive sight. The tree was over a thousand feet long to begin with. We burned away most of that, but it still left us with a 200-foot-long log. Lying on its side, the trunk towered overhead, more than 60 feet. We built stairs going up one side and down the other, with narrow platforms around the open pool. We did all that, but we did not mount shredder cannons on this log, nor did we keep a secure perimeter. Why bother? The hork were completely harmless. I was not in command of the yurt pool. I was not responsible for what came next. Although, to be honest, I wouldn't have thought to do anything different. Still, I wasn't blamed. The yurk who was blamed was later executed. He was slowly starved of Condrona rays. Very slowly. It took him weeks to die. However, I was there that terrible evening. I was there laughing and joking with the other excited new hork controllers. We all loved these host bodies. We were all sure these hosts would make us the match of Andalites in personal combat. With these bodies, we could build things we could never have built with clumsy Ged hosts. We could build our own weapons, our own ships, fast, powerful ships, that would make the galaxy tremble. All the races of the galaxy would be our hosts, our slaves. And when we were strong enough, we would go after the arrogant overlords, the meddling fools whose fleet kept our homeworld imprisoned. In our lifetimes, we would attack, defeat, and enslave the Andalites. It all seemed so easy then. Ten minutes later, We knew better. I was standing by the edge of the pool, 
joking with my twin. Yes, of course, I am a twin, but I am the primary. He is the secondary. We were talking about tactics for fighting with Hortbizier blades when we heard the cries. I peered into the darkness beneath the towering trees. Help! Help! The cries of several voices, all terrified, all panicked, followed by the sizzling noise of shredder fire. And beneath all that, a low, rumbling roar. I saw Hortbizier and Geds running our way, stumbling as they ran. I loosened my shredder in its holster. And then, they appeared. You can have no possible idea how horrifying that sight was. A line of creatures advanced, but creatures like nothing I had ever imagined. Huge, freakish, foul creatures with twisted bodies and massive hands and bristling horns. But as frightening as this weird army was, what frightened me more, what made it all seem terribly dangerous, was a small, bluish-purple figure standing at the head of this mob. A single Andalite girl. Beside her stood a lumbering Hortbegir, I assumed must be Doc Hami. It was Aldria, the daughter of Ciro. She seemed beautiful to me. Is that strange? I suppose it is. But there is a compelling beauty in the sight of someone seemingly so small, and yet so dangerous. And even I, her enemy, could not help being impressed by the sweet irony of it all. Ciro, who had freed us without knowing his peril, was now replaced by Aldria, who would send us back to the yurt pools, or to death. Yes, there was something beautiful in that small, delicate, dangerous creature. Someday, I would tell her how I'd felt at this awful moment. Someday, I would live inside her head, and I would tell her that I had admired her on this day. Someday, when she was my host. Hello, Phantomorphs, and thank you for listening to another episode of Audiomorphs, the Animorphs auditory experience. As always, this is your host, Daniel. Uh, We're going to keep this one... Short and brief because I just spent the hour I wanted to be editing, uh, fixing my computer. I was having issues again. I think I've resolved it, um, but it did take up that hour I normally reserve for editing. So now it's like 8 o'clock and I'm super hungry. So uh, let's just get straight to it. I do have a lovely message from uh, Vega or Vega. Uh, sorry, whichever one uh, is correct. Uh, but uh, I have a message on Tumblr from them. Uh, if you want to send a message on Tumblr, you can do that at audiomorphscast.tumblr.com. This one reads, Hi there, Daniel. I've been binging your audiobook series for the past, I don't know, man, a few months now? As something to listen to while I'm cleaning up at work and then biking home. I didn't know you, I didn't know you didn't technically need to read the books in order as a kid. So I never got past book two, since they didn't have book three at my library and I didn't want to get lost. And now that I'm, like, gonna be 27 in a few months, I pulled out the old dusty memory and thought it would be nice thought it would be nice to try and refine the series, and here I am. I just finished up the David Saga, 
And even though I go through the shorter episodes so I don't have to pay attention to switching to something else when I get near the end of an audio... Sorry, uh, when I get the... (laughs) Tongue-tied. When I get near the end of an episode, because I'm on a bike and it's dark out, I'm going to be waiting for a while until I pick up again so I have enough to binge while mopping floors and biking home. So this message is just to let you know that you're doing an awesome job. I suppose everyone who listens to you or reads the books on their own... Sorry, I'm... <laughs> uh, let me Let me take that one again. I got a little lost there. So this message is... T- so this message is just to let you know that you're doing an awesome job. I suppose everyone who listens to you or reads the books on their own time believes that one day the Andalites will come. But until then, we fight. Take care. And that is just a little look into how my episodes sound uh, before I do all the editing. A lot of flub takes just like that. Sometimes my mouth, like right there, mouth doesn't want to do it. Um... We like to have fun here, don't we? Uh, thank you so much for that message, Vega. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I actually think I revisited the Animorphs around 27 as well. Uh, maybe a little earlier, maybe around 24, 25. But right, right around that time, uh, I was doing third shifts at Target. And I'd come home at 8 a.m. And, you know, I'd need something to wind down. And uh, for some reason, I thought, you know, why not revisit that weird, goofy sci-fi books I read as a kid? Uh, and that was when I first reread them as an adult, uh, realized they're super freaking good. Um, and then a couple years later, I started this podcast. And that's the origin story of this. Um, so I'm glad you're getting to experience it. Totally understand about waiting to binge. Um And uh, thank you for listening, and I hope you keep listening uh, when you decide to pick back up. If you want to send a message like Vega, I think I already mentioned Tumblr, audiomorphscast.tumblr.com. You can also do that through Gmail. That's audiomorphscast at gmail.com. And, of course, you can do do that through my website as well. That's theapodcalypse.com. The Apodcalypse, like apocalypse, but with a D in the middle. And that's my website where I host all my uh, creative endeavors which mostly consists of this podcast and a rewatch podcast for Riverdale I do with my friend Art uh, at this point. Those are really the only two active ones. But, you know, who knows? I always get bored with stuff and start new things. So one of these days. Uh, You can also reach out on Twitter. That's at Audiomorphs. Um, And that's also where you should check if I'm ever uh, egregiously late on an episode. I'm about an hour and a half at this point behind when I normally upload. I think that's an acceptable range. So no update. I'll just be posting this direct. But other than times like this, check that for updates. Uh, I'm rambling. I don't know. I'm hungry. I'm just going to get on out of here. There's a police siren outside. Things are crazy right now. So thank you all for listening. And I will see you next week. My name is Daniel, and I believe one day the Andalites will come. Until then, we fight. <laughs>